The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Leanne Dolan. She is one of the Satellite Sisters and author of You're the Best, a celebration of friendship by the Satellite Sisters for the past 15 years. The sisters Julie, Liz, Sheila, Monica, and Leanne Dolan have entertained us with headlines of the day and career and family life anecdotes. We've laughed, cried, and learned that nothing is more powerful than a sense of connection and the notion that going through life with other people is the better way to go. So in their new book, You're the Best, the Satellite Sisters have turned their focus on one of the most important relationships in our lives, our friends, our Satellite Sisters, the women and men we call when the best thing in your life happens or the worst. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Leanne. Oh, thanks, Catherine. I'm so happy to be here today. Okay. And I, I really should read some of your credentials as well because you are the author of two best-selling novels. Uh, you also have a website, blog, weekly podcast, um, and write, have written for O Magazine. I could go on and on. But we're, here, we're going to talk about You're the Best, a celebration of friendship. So you guys decided to write this book now. Why? Um, it sort of sounds a little bit uh, somewhat of a culmination of all the, of what you've done over the past, what, 15 years since you guys have been on radio. You know, that's a really great way to put it. Um, I think we had reached a point after 15 years of doing Satellite Sisters and connecting with lots and lots of particularly women, but Satellite Sisters and Misters around the world and uh, sort of reaching in our own specific ages where we kind of took a look back at our life and said, how did we get here? What are the really important relationships? And we started Satellite Sisters 15 years ago because we wanted to recreate the sound of friendship on, on the air, on the radio. We thought, why are there are more women's shows, voices of women, you know, who talk to each other like they like each other, and they can talk about the news of the day, and they can talk about, you know, what's going on with work, and they can talk about their family life, and they can laugh, and, and maybe they disagree, but they're still laughing at the end of the conversation. That was always sort of the essence of Satellite Sisters. So when our publisher came to us and said, we'd love you to write a book for the holidays, we thought about, you know what, let's, let's write a thank you note to our, our female friends in particular. Let's write a thank Thank you know, to them for getting us through all that we've been through in the last decades of our lives. Because, frankly, Catherine, I had a big birthday this year. I turned 50, and my sister Julie turned 60. So the publisher came to us originally and said, oh, you know, you should write a book about aging. And I was like, well, that doesn't sound like very much fun. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't really want to write Satellite Sisters, the Menopause Years. So yeah. it was like, but let's write about friendship. That just sounds a lot more fun. And I think when you reach a certain point in your life, you can point to your friends and say, thank you. I don't know how you got me through this, but you did. So thank you. Yeah. 
Yeah, and also I'm amazed that all of you sisters that you sort of went through all of this together for so long a period of time because, um, you know, as a social worker and I'm involved with a lot of families and sisters and brothers and relationships that go wrong and it's just amazing to me. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. How do you guys get it together? What You're from 50 to, you're the youngest, the oldest. Is I'm the youngest. Yeah. So how, you know, what was it in your background, I guess, or your growing up that sort of gave you guys the ability to be able to stick together through all of this and, and be obviously so creative and successful because um, most of the people that I co- can't do that. <laughs> you know, that is true. I think we also have three brothers so that we grew up in a big family of eight kids. We grew up in Connecticut, a big Irish Catholic family. Um, and when you grow up in a big family, there's a, two ways they roll. They're either pretty well structured, like where everyone shows up at 6 p.m. for dinner, or it's a complete free-for-all. Like, there's, there's no in-between. And my, my mom sort of went, ran a very well-structured house, uh, so we always had a lot of chores, and we were expected to do things on our own, and we were expected to be places on time, and we were expected to, you know, get our own homework done or, or suffer the consequences. So, um, you know, we were pretty good working as a unit uh, when we were younger. And I think that does factor into our adult relationship. And, and one of the key lessons I think you learn when you grow up in a big family is you're just not the center of the universe, you know? <laughs> like, uh, no one cares what you've done yeah. all day as long as you show up for dinner at 6 p.m. Yeah. And in a okay, way... What about sibling? But sibling rivalry has to be there on some level. I, I mean... Yeah. Yeah. It is. I mean, it is, but within smaller factions. So, like, we had a great boys versus girls battle our entire lives growing up. So, I think that really bonded the girls together. Uh, you know, certain siblings didn't get along, but I think ultimately, though, um, there's a big enough age difference between the sisters in particular. There's a 10 year spread between the five sisters. And uh, when we got to be adults, you know, we didn't really want each other's lives. So, it wasn't a huge problem because everyone sort of had their own strengths and weaknesses and you know we are not the kind of sisters that are in each other's business all day long like you know we call each other and we enjoy each other's company and we work together um but we we're not the kind of sisters that are like dramatic about that and so i i think that really helps also uh, growing up, my dad worked with his brother. We had a, they ran a family business. It wasn't uh, it wasn't radio and writing in a creative business, but we saw that. My mom was very close with her sisters, so we had great role models. And I, I really think the key to our you know professional relationship is that we don't all work in the same office. <laughs> the key to satellite sisters was that we've always lived all over the place, literally all over the world since doing the show. So, so I you're, think very indi- just- you're very independent, obviously, emotionally, intellectually, you know, financially, uh, and you do different kinds of things, but you all bring something to the table. But what about competition, competition among the sisters? Is it good? Or are you, I mean, do you use that in a healthy way? Because um, that must be there. I mean, you all seem to have, we have some, obviously, skills that are very similar, but then others that are very different. Right. I, you know what? I, I just have to say, I don't think we're a super highly competitive family with each other, except about things like, like actual competitions, like sports or games or trivial pursuit. Yeah, but in terms of my life versus your life, mm, not so much. I think people are pretty much happy with where they ended up. So, 
Uh, I, I, you know, we get asked this a lot, and I wish I had a more dynamic answer, but um, it, it isn't that. I think we respect each other, and uh, but we just don't want each other's lives. You know, or wardrobes or hair. You know, I think we're yeah. all pretty happy with where we ended up. So, Leanne, what, um, what's it like being the youngest of the Satellite Sisters? Because that's a you special know, place. Oh, yeah, yeah I, I was the youngest in our family. I was the baby of the family, but not babied. You know, I think there's a, a difference there. I was pretty independent growing up. And um, what's been fun for me professionally, I think, is, I think people have a tendency to get trapped in their family relationships, like time stands still when you're 13 years old, you know, and you can never break out of that particular relationship pattern or that behavior pattern. You go back to your parents' house and everybody falls back into the same treatment that they, you know, used when they were 13, 14, like the worst moment in your life. That's when you're crystallized in your family's uh, brain. (laughs) But for me, um, I think working with my sisters, I have learned to respect their Talents, and the same is true for me. They have learned to respect mine. So I am the writer in the family. Every All my sisters can write, but I'm the professional writer in the family. So uh, for our book project in 2001 and our second one here in 2015, I was the managing editor. Everything ran through me. I was giving them deadlines and ideas and this and that. And uh, so there's a little bit of the little sister revenge, like they have to, have to respect me and respond to my emails. Um, but I think also the respect is there, too. So I loved being the youngest in a big family. You can really hide for, like, the first 15 years of your life because no one's paying attention to you. So uh, I've never – it's always been really fun. It's been a fun position to be in. All right. So what about your relationship with your mom? Because here she has five daughters and the three sons, mm-hmm. but you're the youngest. So each per, you know, I, I mean, I have three sons, and I know that each one has a special relationship with me. They're all different, you know, love them all the same, but the relationships are different, obviously. So what would you say is your special relationship with your mother and how that's helped you as the youngest? Because, I mean, like you say you hid for 15 years, but yeah. you really weren't hiding from her. <laughs> No, I wasn't. I was learning a lot from my mom. My mom passed away three years ago. Um, That was sort of another inspiration for writing this book, Catherine, is we lost both of our parents within a very short period of time. My mom died at Thanksgiving three years ago, and my father died ten weeks later. And I think that it was a period of long caregiving for my father with Alzheimer's. My mother got cancer and died very suddenly. Um, So I think we turned to our friends then. But um, what I learned from my mom, you know, I was a lot like my mom. We both like to cook. We're both pretty creative. Um, she was not a writer, but she did magical things with flowers and party preparation and meals. Uh, we're both really organized. Um, we both sort of run a tight ship at home. We like to gather our family around and have dinner and have conversation and play games afterwards. So uh, in that sense, I was a lot like my mom. Um, but yeah, a big family is a really different dynamic. So my mom said, I remember at the end of her life, she said, maybe I should have gotten down on the floor and played more games with you all. But I was like, no, don't worry. It was fine. (laughs) So she was very pragmatic. She just couldn't physically do a lot of the 
parenting you see that's so fashionable today. And we were fine with that. Um, but my mom really set, I think, really um, just high standards in the house from the sense that everybody had to contribute and everybody really had to um, to pull their own weight and and to step up and try to be the best person you could be at home. Now, that it was not a perfect house, and I think one of the things my mom always used to say is, can't you just try and be pleasant? You know, <laughs> there was a lot of bad behavior and nasty teenagers and the usual sullenness. But I think my mother always, uh, you know, she taught us to aspire to be pleasant, kinder, better people. And so I think that was a huge influence on me. All right, so then how does that fit into, because you, you said it's, it's a big family is, a big family is different than a small family. I'm not sure what at what point that the turning point is for a big family, three, four, or five kids, whatever. But, yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, but you have you don't have a huge family. You have two children, right? I have two boys. Yeah, two and I boys. often feel like I pay way too much attention to them. Right? Yeah. So, <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. so like, uh, I just I'm like I I pay way too much attention to you. You should just be doing this on your own. <laughs> so. Well, it's different. You have two boys. Well, you had three brothers, but of course this you know obviously close relationship with your sisters all five of you so what's it like difference with two boys um first of all only two and second of all they're boys so that's that's a, that's you know very different than i guess than your family of origin with the the five sisters yeah, I mean, we had I have, we have three brothers. They had a huge, profound influence on the family because they were the two oldest in the family. Were two boys. So now, are they uh, as, still, as successful as the as you as the five sisters? Oh yeah, they're they're excellent. I mean, they've done excellently for themselves, and they're funny and smart and enjoyable, and uh, you know, been super supportive and have done very well. So that's. Uh, you know, professionally, we're the Satellite Sisters, but collectively, we were the Dolan family, and, and our brothers were, you know, a huge influence on us, still great friends. My closest sibling was my brother, Brendan, so I spent most of my childhood with my brother more than my sisters, because they were six and seven years older than me, which when you're little is a big gap. And um, so I love having two boys. Um, I do feel obviously like the odd mom out of many times in the house. It's a good thing that I, I like sports and I like dogs and I, I don't mind messes and I know how to cook huge quantities of food because that that's all been very helpful as the mother of boys. Um, you know, I just, I find that uh, they're, you know, fairly easy to get along with emotionally, but I do have certain questions that I have to turn to my husband and say, I don't know what's happening here. What is happening? <laughs> Why is he behaving like this? Or what are they thinking? And the answer is usually they're just not thinking. So, uh, but I love having boys. I love them. Yeah, well, I do too. That's all I've yeah. had. And I had two brothers, yeah. so I'm not, you know, maybe... I never had sisters and never had daughters, so uh, it, you know a different ball game for me. But you know, we can let's talk about the book a little, kind of sure. fitting that. And you're the best a celebration of friendship, and you talk about in the book, you know, thank you to your female friends for all the uh, the help that you've gotten along the way. But talk about some of the difficult times, because you know people are listening, thinking, "Wow, you know, here she is. She's talented. She's you know these. The, you know, you've done great things. You've got a great relationship. And yeah, there are problems. So, what are some of the problems? Because all this stuff seems to come out, especially around the holidays. You know, there's the good stuff, but then, you know, it kind of awakens in families some of the the struggles they've had. So, like hearing it from from you, like what are maybe the most difficult issues that you've had to resolve or you've been helped by with your sisters, your friends? Um. 
Well, I think certainly um, the, the caregiving, being a, I am a classic sandwich generation mom, or I was until my parents died three years ago. Uh, that was a very long period. I feel like there was a decade of my life when I just was flat out sprinting um, because I had kids who were, you know, tweens and then teenagers and applying to college, like the very same moment my parents who needed tremendous amount of care had moved close to me in Southern California so I could be a primary caregiver for them. You know, I had that going on. I had... um, professional obligations, obviously. I'm a novelist. I mean, that's a huge amount of, you know, like mind space to get a novel out. We need a tremendous amount of focus. Uh, You know, I have a husband who has a demanding job. So I I think for me that was a period where I look back now. I I almost don't even remember it, Catherine. Like there's like a three- or four-year period where I think to myself, how did I do that? Just I was literally like, running from the moment I woke up to the moment I went to bed and then I'd wake up in the middle of the night worried about something that my mother had said or something that my son was going through or, you know, something that I needed was on deadline for. During that period, I had five root canals in three years. And that, and I, I knew that's how bad it was. Like, my doctor looked at me, he said, you are literally grinding your teeth to death. Yeah. You know, so that's sort of tremendous. was right in your mouth. Or, all that. Right? It was just literally right there. And, and, you know, at that time, I feel like uh, I could only tell a couple of people what was really happening. Because when you, you're in that extreme caregiving situation, people want to give you all kinds of, like, really not that helpful advice. Like, you know, when your father has Alzheimer's and they're saying, well, he should do more crossword puzzles. And you're like, okay, we are so beyond crossword yeah. puzzles. <laughs> I can't even tell you. So, you know, your world gets very small. And you can tell a couple of people, and they don't offer you advice that's not helpful. They send you texts that say, hey, I'm just thinking of you. Uh, no need to call me back, you know, or they'll say, you call you and say, I just left some soup and some bread by your front door. I don't need the containers back. Uh, those are hugely helpful things. And I really. But did learned... anybody ever give you good advice? Not that yeah, 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 a couple be... of. Yeah, yeah, a couple of people did, and that's why you have this kind of small circle of friends, and uh, that can really, really help you out. And But it's hard at that time to even know what's good and what's bad advice. You just know you're just literally trying to get through every single day. And, um, and I see that now. I feel like now I have this kind of cosmic obligation to pay people back. Now a couple of my friends are going through the same thing. They have Their parents have reached the stage where they need a lot of care, a lot of help, where things are going poorly, where they're hiring help for their parents and their parents are firing them. I mean, where, <laughs> wherever they move their parents to, that's not working out. Like all of the things we went through, I see people going through. And I feel like I'm a lot more open to helping people now. I have my head up and I'm looking around more. I have a little bit more time, honestly, a lot more time. Now, I'm not the primary caregiver for aging parents. And, and I can really reach out to people in a way that I wasn't really available for in the past. And uh, I'm, I'm happy to do that. But so I think if people are having a hard time, turn to, turn to your friends. Let a few people in. 
not everybody. <laughs> don't, just let a couple of people help you. I think women have a really hard time with that, letting people help. And, and once I said, like, yeah, bring the soup. Yes, I do need someone to pick my son up at school. Okay, I'll take that. Yeah, great. Uh, that was hugely helpful to me. So. Why do you think women have trouble accepting help? That we think we should be doing it all. You should have been the caregiver to both parents and mother to your two boys and a, you know a partner to your husband. And you are the expectation was you should be doing it all. So you can't let anybody help you. Is that a sign of weakness? Do we see that as a sign of weakness, or did you? I I don't know why. I don't know what the problem is with us. <laughs> I don't. I'm not a psychologist. Yeah. I think for me, I had just been so used to sort of being kind of an independent, get it done sort of person that it seemed easier to try to pull it all off myself. And uh, at, you reach a point where you just physically can't do it. I remember um, the day after my mom died. Uh, it was literally the day after my mom died. My son was a senior in high school. We had a meeting with his high school counselor. And um, he was applying to the Cal States. The deadline was the next day, and he hadn't done the application. Uh, it was just such a terrible period. And I remember the guidance counselor literally like did the application for us in the in the appointment, and I started to sob. I was like, I thank you so much. I, I, we could not have pulled this off. And that to me was like this very tangible example of letting somebody help you because you can't physically do it. But I just think of that as like this tremendous act of kindness. He took one yes. look at me and one look at my son and he just blew through the Cal State application for us. And, you know, I, I don't know. So I don't know why we don't say, you know, yes, I need your help more often. I also don't know why we don't say no more. We take on all these extra obligations. Well, we have enough obligations on our own. You know, and one, the year my mom was, I could tell it was going to be a bad year with my father, the Alzheimer's. He was really in decline, and I knew my son was applying to colleges, and I had a book due. So I actually took a volunteer sabbatical. I said, I said, I am not saying yes to anything, and that was a huge, I was, that was a huge relief. That was just a, you know, it enabled me to not feel guilty about not bringing things to the bake sale or being, being there to sell, you know, at the football games. I was just so relieved that I had had the foresight to say no to everything. So, you know, say yes to help and say, say no to the extra stuff is what I would say. And being so aware, you really do have to be aware, which obviously you were, and to be able to, to do that, to set yeah. those limits, set those boundaries, not a, and it's not easy to do. And I think when it's someone like you who is bright, talented, has so much energy, sometimes it's more difficult for, I think, women like yourself to be able to stop and say, you know, I just, you don't want to say it, but I can't do it or I won't do it, actually. I right. just won't do it. Yeah. I won't do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a long life, you know. And a couple of years here or there where you sort of take a pass on a lot of things, it's okay. And I, we don't get that message enough, I don't think. You know, there's a huge pressure out there if you have kids in a school to do all the volunteer work or, you know, if you're, the, if you're working your way up the ladder to say yes to working every weekend. And, and you know, it's a long life. I, I've learned to pace myself a lot more. 
Yeah, I think I did that by the third child, my third son, <laughs> and I was able to say, I'm not baking the cookies. I'm going to the grocery store, and I'm buying them, and here they are for the PTA. I don't have to prove anything by uh, making a fabulous cookies for fifth graders. Um, sounds like a small thing, but it wasn't in the context of No, it's, of not. All it's stuff. not a small yeah. thing, yeah. But, yeah. All right, so we're talking, we, don't, we only have a couple minutes left, but okay, let's talk about, I mean, specifically the book, because, I mean, it addresses obviously all these issues, um, and it's, it's but kind of from a practical point of view. So um, what's been the response to the book, actually? You know what? I can't even tell you how fantastic um, being out on this book tour has been, and uh, I, and it, it's, we have a loyal listenership with Satellite Sisters. We have people who have been listening to us for 15 years. Um, and so uh, to be out with this book has just been a tremendous gift to me. We wrote it as a thank you gift to our female friends, but it has been a chance for me personally to reconnect with people I haven't seen in years, to meet listeners who have been so loyal to us, who, who feel like friends because they are friends. We've gotten to know them virtually. Uh, it, it's just been a fantastic love fest because I think you do need to say thank you to your friends every once in a while. It, the, the, the opportunity can pass so quickly and you don't take your moment. And this has been a fantastic moment to sort of reach out to the people who have really meant a tremendous amount to us uh, to say thank you. And we had, I think, the best example of response sometimes you write you write something you put a creative project out there you don't know what the response is going to be like and then somebody says one thing to you and you're like okay that's it we we set out to do our mission and the very first weekend the book was out um someone came to one of the book signings and they said you know i got to the third essay and i picked up the phone and i called someone i haven't talked to in 10 years and i'm like great that's exactly what we wanted or we saw um we saw people ordering 10 and 20 copies and writing tremendous notes to their friends on the opening pages and then, and then sending them out as Christmas gifts, and they would send us the photos on Facebook. Or another reader said she annotated all the pages for the specific people she was giving it to, like, this reminds me of you, you did this for me, and they sent us photos on Instagram. It was fantastic to see that response because we, we tried to cover, like, all the kind of friends you have in your life, your college friends, your mom friends, your work friends, your fitness friends, you know, the friends who give you bad medical advice, the friends who give you financial advice, the friends in good times, the friends in bad, and I, I think we did a pretty good job. And, and the response has been really personal and really positive uh, and just tremendously gratifying to see. So this is like a, a, a holiday present to kind of the women of the world, really. Yeah. I mean, it, it might, yeah, it must be so great. I mean, it has to make you feel good, obviously. I mean, kind of putting it all in writing, this, everything that you've been talking about on the radio or on doing your podcast, that was another question. Now that you're doing podcasts, because that's a whole new, it's not brand new, but arena, how, how, you know, what's the difference from doing the podcast and doing like live radio? Um, you know, the actual, the moment you turn on the mic, there's no difference. Everything else is completely different. Um, for the radio show, we had a, a production team. We started on public radio and then moved to ABC, and we were on ABC for six years. We were on six days a week, 
three hours a day live, which is a huge amount of radio. We talked to a lot of big-name guests, and we just it was just a lively variety show. The podcast is just so much more personal. You're literally like sitting in a closet recording a show. <laughs> What's the opposite of having a nationally syndicated radio show? It's a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but you know, we, uh, we, Disney sold off the radio division six years ago, and so we moved everything online then. So we've been doing it for six years, mainly because we weren't done. We felt like there was still a reason for women's voices to be out there, and we were going to figure out how to make it happen. And, you know, that's why it was so fun, I think, to be out with You Are the Best, uh, to be meeting people, because literally, Catherine, we sit in a closet and do our show, so. <laughs> that's a challenge. That's a whole different kind of challenge to be able to do that. It really is. Yeah. You have to it's get your the energy. least glamorous thing you can imagine. Uh, yeah. And it's not a big closet. I just would like to be clear. Yeah. So, it doesn't uh, have to be. Yeah. No. No. Okay. That's much better for sound. Well, it's been great talking to you today and, uh, c- you know, continuing to share all the personal stuff that's happened in your life and with your sisters and your book. Uh, you're the best. A Celebration of Friendship by the Satellite Sisters, and I've been talking to the youngest one, uh, the baby of the group, Leanne Dolan, and, um, who's, and, and you can mention your podcast, too, how we can uh, you know, access those. You can find Satellite Sisters at iTunes or at SatelliteSisters.com. Okay, and those you can get the book online, bookstores everywhere. Great talking yeah. to you today. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks, Catherine. Okay, we're going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in each week for Monica Phillips and powerful conversations. This is a thought-provoking show for business people, leaders, and entrepreneurs. We'll feature today's thought leaders and industry trendsetters from across several locations and industries. Give yourself permission to be inspired and live a fulfilling life. Be sure to listen to Powerful Conversations, live every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. Drawing on resources from wellness communities throughout America and abroad, the show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health 
and Wellness Network. The Voice America Live Events page is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is David E. Johnson, CEO of Strategic Vision PR Group Public Relations Agency, which specializes in crisis communications and shares advice on what we should do when things go wrong. And you've seen uh, David on CNN, Fox News, Fox Business Network, and uh, in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, David. It's great to be on. Okay, so we're going to talk about crisis communications, but specifically Steve Harvey's Miss Universe mix-up, um, because that seems to be resonating around the world. Uh, you know, it was a huge, what this happened on Monday, uh, when he crowned the wrong Miss Universe uh, winner. He said it was, what, Miss Columbia, and it was really Miss Philippines. So that was a huge blunder. Um, why is everybody so interested in it? You're in crisis communications. This is a crisis. He apologized. Did he do it right? Did he? Do, and why are we talking about it, I guess, is the real question. Well, he did some things right, uh, some things wrong. And I'll tell you, part of the reason we're still talking about it right now, especially on this show and, of course, on all the networks, is it's Christmas week. It's a slow news week. And the worst thing you want to have happen is some kind of blunder, some kind of blooper, because that's all the media is going to cover on a slow news week. Just think back a couple of years ago, it was Duck Dynasty. Okay. So, all right. And now so we're talking we're ta- Steve Harvey. And yeah. with Steve okay. Harvey, he was caught on tape doing it. It was an oops moment. And then he compounded it by going on to social media and misspelled Philippines and misspelled Colombia when he tried to apologize to the two women. And as I said, it's a slow news week. The worst time you want a scandal to happen is during the holiday period or during the summer. And, of course, this happened during the holiday period. So I expect unless something big pops up in the next couple of days, We'll be hearing a little bit more about Miss Columbia, Steve Harvey, and Miss Philippines, and the Miss Universe pageant going down. But okay, but we do, uh, Steve. We do. I mean, David. <laughs> now I'm calling you Steve. Uh, we we do have the elections. We have all the uh, what's happening in the elections, and some of those I think are blunders as well. Maybe we can talk about that later. But uh, let's kind of analyze this this 
blunder or this miscommunication? What could he have done differently? What, you know, how do you handle, because, you know, you can generalize this kind of thing to, to obviously other kinds of circumstances, and you're an expert in the field of crisis communication. What would you have told him to do uh, differently, Steve Harvey, in, in terms of handling this, this blunder? Well, he did do some things correct. Uh, once there was a mistake, he admitted it right, a, right away. He took responsibility. But beyond that, what he should have done was, before he sent out anything on social media, make sure that everything was spelled correctly, made sure that it sounded sincere. Then what he should have done next, instead of flying back home after this all occurred, he should have gone on one of the morning shows, be interviewed about it, profusely apologize yet again, try to put the emphasis back on the two contestants, and also poke fun at himself. Instead, we're not really hearing from Steve Harvey, so we have rumors abounding. Yesterday, it was a rumor was there was a conspiracy theory with the uh, Miss Universe people, and Steve Harvey, is this why this happened? Was it all about ratings? The longer he stays quiet, the more we'll be talking about it. And the other thing for Steve Harvey is his reputation suffers. We're and losing you. Are you on your cell phone? No, I'm not. David? Yes, I'm on my office phone. Yeah, I think we're losing you. I'm getting just bits and pieces. Okay, I'm on my office phone. I don't know what to say. Oh, okay, now you're okay, but it was just a while. So just backtrack a little with what you just said before. Yeah, he uh, should have gone on uh, news stations and and talked about it more. And there was some kind of a conspiracy? We have uh, rumors abounding. uh, Good Morning America and then uh, USA Today. They carried stories yesterday that this was all a conspiracy to hype up ratings and talk about the Miss Universe pageant. So what do you and think? then we're also hearing on Entertainment uh, Tonight that he didn't really do all the rehearsals. He was out drinking. The longer he does not address this issue, the more we're going to hear all of these other stories going on about Steve Harvey, about the Miss Universe pageant. And the other thing is it damages his reputation. Yeah, that he was my next question. Is his reputation going to be down the tubes that he's not going to be able to actually, if he, if he lets this go on for this period of time and all this kind of speculation, which maybe some is true, some isn't, uh, that he will not be able to recover? He'll recover. I mean, he won't be destroyed, but his reputation will be hampered. You'll see some sponsors moving away from him, and he's going to become the... Uh, but of every late-night comedian's joke, and that's going to continue to linger on, and his reputation will not be at the same level as it was prior to this. What he needs to do, really, as I said, is address this issue, poke fun at himself. The other thing I would recommend that he do, too, and I think this is a major problem for both him and the Miss Universe pageant, is they really haven't approached Miss Columbia, apologized to her. If I were Steve Harvey, I would be sending her roses, profusely apologizing to her. The Miss Universe pageant, what we're hearing now is they're trying to do extensive media training for Miss Philippines, but they're also having some of the celebrity judges like Perez Hilton seem to pile on Miss Columbia, and I think this really backfires and hurts both Harvey and the Miss Universe pageant. Well, is there any chance that they could be sued? I mean, you know, in Miss Columbia, for instance, that she can say, you know, she did get crowned, 
So there was, what, two minutes of being crowned or a minute or a minute and a half. I think it was 90 seconds uh, or 90, uh, yeah, about 90 seconds that she was Miss Universe. Yes, I definitely think she's going to sue. We're hearing talks about lawsuits. So far, she's coming across the best in this entire crisis, very calm, very poised. She congratulated Miss Philippines uh, after uh, this mishap. But the problem right now for Steve Harvey and the Miss Universe pageant is you have some of these judges saying there's no way that Miss Columbia could ever won. They're trying to disparage her. Steve Harvey staying quiet, it makes them look like the heavy. If I was advising the Miss Universe pageant, the first thing I would do is announce we're going to have co-winners this year and have both of them share the crown. Has that ever happened before? Has anybody ever shared the crown? Would this be the first? It's never happened before, but we've never had a mishap like this either before. Yeah. (laughs) But I will say this also for the Miss Universe pageant and for uh, Steve Harvey. Look, they're getting more coverage today than they would have had they not done this. Everyone's talking about the Miss Universe pageant. It's one of the most frequently uh, Googled search terms right now. Steve Harvey's getting tons of free publicity. And look, the Miss Universe pageant just re-upped his contract, uh, host the uh, pageant yet again. So in other words, this could be, as it plays itself out, it could be a plus in terms of marketing the Miss Universe con, uh, uh, contest as well as Steve Harvey himself. You got it. The well, problem they- right now is that they come across too heavy if they attack uh, Miss Columbia. Then they look bad. Well, Miss Columbia behaved like uh, she's trained to do that. That's why she almost became <laughs> Miss Universe, right? I mean, both of them, that's what they do. So she has, this is all part of how she has been trained to act and react. I mean, she's a, uh, in front of the public, right? So she, as you say, she's probably doing the right thing herself. But um, So how do you think it is going to play out? I mean, okay, you're saying now it's, you know, it's the Christmas holidays. You know, we, you know, we need stuff to talk about. And then after other, the holidays, then what happens? Does this just go by the by? And, They'll and, be and forgotten about. I mean, look at Duck Dynasty. That was the big buzz back in 2013. And then all of a sudden, it died down. We don't even talk about Duck Dynasty anymore. Every holiday uh, season, it seems that there is a scandal, there is a crisis, and we focus on it. The media focuses on it because it's a 24-7 news cycle, and it drives the ratings. And there's something to report on. They overlook the hard news for these really mundane stories that they can sensationalize. And that's what we're seeing happen right now. Because when we look at the scope of things, is it going to matter Come 2016, no. Is it affecting the economy, uh, the global situation? No. But it's a crisis. And any time you see a celebrity or a high-profile event caught in a crisis, the media loves it because they like controversy. But, David, let me ask you this, because, okay, that's your business, crisis communications. And we've been doing this for, what, 20 years or more? Over 20 years, yes. Yeah, so it seems to me, hasn't it changed because... We, 
you know, go from one, it seems to me, because of the 24-hour news and we're always, you know, you're online and there's always a crisis somewhere that you can kind of hone in on. So we do kind of, it seems to me, jump from crisis to crisis. We, as, a, as the general public, we kind of get off on it. I mean, I don't know, like 20 years ago, if you were handling as, you know, a PR company handling a crisis situation, does, it may have remained a crisis for a much longer period of time because the public couldn't jump to something else as quickly as it can today? Well, actually, it could or could not. A lot of these crises that we're talking about wouldn't even have made it 20 or 30 years ago because you only had the three networks. You didn't have social media. A lot of times, an issue does not become a major crisis except for social media. Social media drives narratives. It creates these crises. Look, Quite honestly, the Miss Universe pageant might have got some coverage this past week, people talking about it on Monday after it happened, except for the fact social media is driving it. They're doing the memes where they show Steve Harvey holding uh, Dewey Beats Truman, uh, doing the Florida recount, doing a thousand and one different things, posting on Facebook, tweeting about it. That drives narratives more than anything, and as a result, it creates news for the media to talk about. What are people talking about on social media? So that's why we're hearing more and more about this. And part of the problem for Steve Harvey was his social media response was not very strong, not very good. It had misspellings in it, and it just created more ridicule that this guy's incompetent. All right, jumping from, you know, uh, from... This, that particular crisis with Steve Harvey, because you are in the business, and I think it's really kind of an interesting, actually quite fascinating, crisis communications. So what are you dealing with every day? Because you deal with crisis communications, but in all different kinds of fields, as you, you know, legal and medical and political. Uh, you know, give us some examples of, like, what you, on a, you know, a yearly or a week. Basis. What are you? What are you dealing, or daily, I guess, uh, in terms of crisis communications because uh, of this whole social media aspect of it? Well, one of the top things is to make sure that your social media response, whether you're a business, a celebrity, a brand, is consistent with what you're saying on in traditional media. Part of the problem that we see often with various brands is they'll say one thing apologize, be addressing the issue in the traditional media, yet their social media, they may be ignoring it completely, promoting ads, or they might be attacking people who are criticizing them. One of the things that I work with all the time is to ensure that there is a seamless connection between your social media and your traditional media approach. Okay, and give us, one of the, give us one of the things I do, too, more than anything, is try to anticipate these crises for clients have a response ready so it doesn't snowball, so you don't hear about it in the news. Give us an example. Can, can you give us an example? I mean, I, it, it, like a, a real-life example, and put it in that context that you just described. Well, certainly. I was dealing with a small uh, mechanic shop that was being attacked by one unhappy consumer nonstop, and I approached him on how to basically ignore him on social media and when the media called, showed how they did the proper work, everything was signed off, and this was just a person who wasn't happy because he had an expensive bill. It wasn't a massive conspiracy of shoddy work 
or overcharging, and the story completely dissipated, didn't even appear on the news. So when a client comes to you, it can be a small business, big business, political? It can be any size business. It can be political. It can be a sports figure, an entertainment celebrity. What we try to do first is map out various scenarios. What can happen? One of the biggest things that we see happening a lot of times is that online reviews can draw and create a crisis. The news media begins looking at various big-name businesses. They see a lot of uh, critics on it. So they'll begin calling around to find out, does any of this criticism you know, really apply? Is there maybe a story? Is there something going on? So it seems to me that, I mean, when you go online and everything is, I mean, I, can, I go online, I pick a topic, maybe there's you know, a crisis. In, in, let's say, let's take politics. Give us an example of a, a, a politician. How does that work? Because uh, it seems to me they're always in crisis in terms of what they say or how they say it, or, you know, um, well, the, the stuff that's going back and forth between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, for instance. Um, uh, it, it, how, do, how do you handle those kinds of situations? Well, Donald Trump defies laws of gravity <laughs> and crisis communications. Everything he does basically yeah. is what we say to people don't do. Yeah. But one of the reasons I think he is surviving this crisis and it's rebounding to in his favor is something that you have to be in any type of crisis. He's consistent with his brand. His brand is that he's loud, abrasive, obnoxious. People buy into that brand. When you're addressing a crisis, taking responsibility, dealing with it, you have to be consistent with your brand, with the brand ID that you've built up over years. Because if your response isn't, people aren't going to buy your response. But was that Donald Trump then is a good example because that wasn't always his brand, was it? I mean, yes, he was always out there. He's a performer. But I was listening to something. uh, It was a... uh, uh, I think it was on A&E, and it was uh, like a, a documentary, really, of, of his beginnings in New York City as a developer and a lot of interviews. And it, it seems to me that he maybe was very outspoken, but certainly not in the way that he is today, you know, this sort of really abrasive, uh, I, I can't think of a word to, to, to describe it, but... Uh, you know, with racist comments and those kinds of things, because he wasn't that way before. He sort of switched his brand a little bit, it seems to me. He switched over the years because he's seen what drives the media, what gets him attention. And the media has changed. Look, we're no longer into the age of Walter Cronkite, John Chancellor, Chet Huntley. We're into it's about performance. And the people who are more abrasive, more obnoxious, more loud-spoken get the media coverage. We're seeing this in the political field. You see people like Lindsey Graham and Bobby Jindal, both of who dropped out of the presidential race, who were serious talking about policy, getting no coverage whatsoever. Donald Trump spouting his mouth, being as obnoxious as can be, the media covers it. And that drives narratives now. And that's one of the new lessons we're learning in the media. The more obnoxious you are, the more outspoken you are, the greater your chances of coverage. Yeah. I, I think that's, a, that's, that's very true. And I, uh, another candidate who was on the second tier was uh, George Pataki, for instance, who I think is a very substantial guy, but is certainly kind of a 180 personality-wise from Donald Trump, and he gets really no recognition. 
Um, no, he doesn't. And we see that, and that's one of the one of the new rules in politics. We're seeing it on the Democratic side, too, where people who have expertise, like Governor Martin O'Malley, for example, are not getting the coverage. But the more loud and outspoken you are, like Bernie Sanders, who I think is true to his brand, but, I mean, does come across as obnoxious at times to people who are loud and outspoken, as I said, he's getting the coverage. So what does that say for, the, for let's say, for uh, politics in general? I mean, just your opinion in the United States, because it doesn't sound like it's, it's you know, just getting out there and, and getting your brand out there and being obnoxious and putting on a show is really not good on either side, you know, Democrat or Republican, for our country, is it? I mean, in terms of really being able to evaluate candidates in terms of what they do or are able to do or... No, it really isn't. It's more that right now what you have to be to survive in this political field, to go somewhere, is to be outspoken. That's what's going to get you ahead. That's what's going to get you coverage. That's what's going to get you the media coverage that people will donate to your campaign. They'll support you. So do you see that as ever changing or um, evolving into something maybe more productive, or is this the, just the direction we are going in? I think it's the direction we're going in, and unless the public really uh, demands a change at some point, I think it's going to continue to be the way we're going. So how would the public demand a change? By tuning out some of these showboats, tuning out the networks. I think with the networks, uh, begin seeing that the more that they cover the loudmouths, the obnoxious people, their ratings go down, then I think you might see something. Yeah, but we, we, uh, there's something about it. I guess we get drawn into that stuff. It sort of takes us away from our own lives. It's, it's appealing. It's just, you know, it's a, it's a show. And when everybody, you know, people do like a show. And uh, so that uh, it seems to me that we would be almost impossible for us. To, if it's out there, we're going to listen to it. Exactly. And we're going to continue to, I think, as long as we live in the social media 24-7 news cycle where people can basically say anything they want and are not held accountable to what they say. And it's almost impossible in this, isn't it, in this context to make them accountable? It really is. There's no accountability, and on social media people can say anything, and a lot of times we've seen the wildest accusations, the wildest rumors get reported on. And that's one of the things, too, that we've seen change with the news media also, is that the news media now, sometimes some of these stories that we see pop up on social media, they were never going to cover. But once it appears on social media, they think they can cover it. It's a way that they get around doing what they were told they couldn't do that once it appears on social media, even if there is nothing to back it up, and they originally declined to cover the story, they feel now they have to cover it. So what is this? We have a couple more minutes left. So what does that say for a business like yours, for instance, crisis communications? Is that good that for business? That it's 24-7 or? and always changing. Always changing. Is that what you said? Yes. Yeah, but is it... You're always cha- yeah, but what I'm saying is, is that good for your business? Does this get, you know, because things are constantly in crisis, or how does that work? It means that it's constantly changing, and that you're always on your toes. That it's there's never a time to rest. It's twenty four seven. 
Okay, well, uh, very interesting. Strategic Vision CEO and co-founder David E. Johnson. We've been talking about a lot of things, but we started out talking about Steve Harvey's mix, uh, Miss Universe mix-up. Uh, so if we want more infor- information about you and about your business and what you are doing, Crisis Communications, uh, where do we go, David? You can go to the website, strategicvisionpr.com. Okay, and where are you located? We're located in Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta, Georgia. Okay, so um been great talking to you today. Interesting. Oh, it's been great talking to you. Yeah, yeah. thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Uh, David thank e. you. David E. Johnson, Strategic Vision CEO and co-founder. Um, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, and management.